There are two renditions of the temptation narrative, one of them being in the Gospel of Matthew, the other one being in the Gospel of Luke. I like the one in the Gospel of Luke because it takes the, the appropriate um, uh, sequence of the events uh, according to the topography of the Holy Land as we understand it today, and that's what we have heard this morning. And we remember the conclusion of that passage from Luke. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. You know, the devil is a contingent planner. He isn't God, so he doesn't know everything. So he must make educated guesses and engage his erstwhile victims in a diabolical game of chess, as it were. He moves, then he backs off. He studies our moves, then he hems us in, and then he checkmates us if he can. When Jesus appeared on the earth, the world had been checkmated. The Roman Empire had spread itself across this planet like an iron quilt, and nobody felt the heavy cold more than Israel the ancient people of God. Even worse, for about 400 years, and that would be from the close of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, the people had endured what has been termed a prophetic silence. As in the days of Samuel, the word of the Lord was rare, and there was no frequent vision. But then, around A.D. 30, word came to Jerusalem that someone had broken the silence. An eccentric preacher named John had pitched his camp on the east bank of the river near Jericho at a place called Bethany beyond Jordan. And this unusual preacher was performing ritual baptisms. These were ritual washings that bespoke repentance. And Jerusalemites and others were walking the 18 or so miles down the Roman road to hear this John the Baptist, as he was called, and perhaps to be immersed in the river. Now, being the curious sort, Satan went down that way too. And what he saw and what he heard along the riverbank that day took his sulfurous breath. For a seeming simpleton, an uneducated Galilean, made his way through the crowds and accepted baptism. And when the Galilean's head emerged from those murky waters, it was as if the heavens were spread open and the Spirit of God came down. And then an ethereal voice declared, Jesus of Nazareth is the one and only. He is the Son of God. Now observe that the devil, whose reality, by the way, the New Testament unequivocally affirms, is a spirit being. He understands better than anybody, perhaps more than the Baptist himself, the implication of what has just happened. In this Jesus, this very ordinary-looking man, God the Father has arrived. God has visited a planet where Satan has heretofore held everyone hostage. And chillingly, chillingly, Jesus is preparing himself to mount a challenge to the devil's dominion. 
Now, Satan senses that a titanic struggle is coming. He steps back. He sizes up his opponent. Obviously, Jesus is in every detail a human being, and human beings are no match for the devil. As Martin Luther would sing many years later, on earth is not the devil's equal. Satan supposes he might prevail in the coming contest, but he doesn't know for sure, so why take the risk? Maybe he can head this off at the pass. Maybe Jesus can be lured to the bargaining table. So first the devil tries diplomacy. Jesus is departing west for the Judean wilderness. Satan follows closely. He looks around. He notices all of the rocks. And if you've ever visited the Holy Land, you know that if Israel has a cash crop, it must be rock. They may not have oil, but they will always have rock. Satan speaks. If you are the Son of God, if you are, command this stone to become bread. Let's assume that you are, in fact, the Son of God, Satan says. Use your power. Strut your stuff. Don't go hungry. Don't deprive yourself. God led you out here, but if he's got you on trial, don't play that game. Why suffer hunger when you can easily change desert rocks into warm loaves of bread? Ironically, the initial temptation is actually, if you'll think about it, a temptation to avoid being tempted. When it comes to suffering, you know, Satan must have mixed emotions. On the one hand, he's in the business of making people do that. He's in the business of making people miserable. On the other, people who suffer are much more likely to be God-reliant. And that is the last thing that Satan wants. In the case of this Jesus, if he's really the Son of God, it gets even more complicated, for if the old prophets like Isaiah are right, his suffering could produce human redemption. So it's important to Satan that Jesus not suffer. This can become a win-win situation if only Jesus will cooperate. The temptation to avoid temptation is alluring. Think of the wonder of a world without fear, without anxiety, without testing. Would not you love to inhabit a world where amber alerts and tornado drills, biopsies, and trips to the cardiologist were no longer necessary. But Satan is real, and suffering does come, as Jan Marie has reminded us to everyone. Later, Jesus himself would conclude temptations are bound to come. One day he would seek refuge in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would pray there, for his own cup of suffering to be removed. But there, as here, he would stand strong. For now, if the Father wished for him to suffer breadlessness, then he would remain breadless. He would remember Moses, who said, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now the devil must cut to the chase. Clearly, Jesus is spoiling for a fight. 
Yet he's vulnerable. His hunger proves that. So there exists in Satan's arsenal a seduction that fells people left and right. Who knows? Perhaps it will work on Jesus. So Satan begins by preaching some unvarnished truth. He brings, as it were, the satanic gospel. And here it is. Listen closely. When it comes to worship, my friends, you have choices. There are always at least two gods to choose among. One of these is the God of heaven. The other is identified scripturally as the God of this world. And here's the deal. There is very little that you are prevented from having in all of this world as long as you are willing to bow down and worship its God. At this point, Jesus finds himself where we find ourselves every day. He must make a value judgment. It is a choice between that which lights up and lasts and that which fades quickly to black. It is a choice between the here and now and the yet to come. Why, faced with this decision, do most people choose the here and now? It's because the heart of this temptation is accessibility. The present can be seen, it can be heard, it can be felt, it can be touched, it can be tasted. Nobody has immediate access tomorrow, however. Tomorrow can only be spoken about and longed for. We see in the very beginning of the Bible that Adam trusted what he could access. He chose forbidden fruit, which was pleasant to the eyes and desired to make one wise. He chose that over life everlasting. Same with Esau. Esau chose a bowl of broth, something he could smell, something he could taste over a sacred birthright. And later on, the children of Israel would stay focused on the flesh pots of Egypt rather than look forward to the great and waiting land of promise. So already it is decision time. Now it is decision time for Jesus. What in life is it that he will esteem? What will he serve? What will be his ultimate concern? Will it be that which, though it is said to last forever, has only been promised? Or will it be that which, while it cannot last, is nonetheless at least accessible and may be enjoyed here and now? And we read, So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this, I will give all this authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me, if you will, it will all be yours. Without so much as a moment's hesitation, Jesus answers, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Well, now Satan is getting really frustrated. To this point, Jesus' will has been unbreakable. He intends to trust God and God alone, 
and he will trust him for all eternity. Well, so it is, but the devil knows it's not over till it's over. So the question now becomes, having trusted God for all eternity, will Jesus trust him for all time? Will he trust him for today and for tomorrow and for all the days to come? When you travel those 18 miles back uphill from the Jordan River, you crest out atop the Mount of Olives. And from there, you can view the ancient Temple Mount, and sitting atop it today is the Muslim Dome of the Rock. And what the Bible calls the pinnacle of the temple is still clearly visible today. It is high above the southeastern corner of that 37-acre complex. And the temptation here is not what some have supposed, for Jesus to perform aerial acrobatics and thereby draw a crowd. Rather, Satan wants him to do something to prove whether God is really real, really there. And if God really is there, whether he has what it takes, that is enough power and enough love to save the son about whom he spoke so lovingly down at the Jordan River. What Satan wants is for God the Son to challenge God the Father to act. After all, says the devil, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Does it surprise you that Satan is such a student of Scripture? Twice now, Jesus has used the Bible to beat back the assault. And now, in a last-ditch attempt to win the day, Satan borrows the same tactic. Clearly, both Jesus and Satan acknowledge the truth of God's word, and clearly both recognize its immense power. But Jesus will not put his father to the test, and that is because kinship with God is not about what we can get God to do, nor is it about whether we can find a way out of the struggles and the sufferings of this life. Rather, kinship with God Citizenship in heaven is believing in the might and the goodness of God so much that we stick with him and stay with him regardless of what happens. And isn't that the witness of so many of the Bible's faithful? Irrespective of whether God keeps us from suffering, regardless of what he does or does not do for us, we stay with him. We stay at his side. Three young Hebrews said to the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar, Yep, we believe our God has the power to save us from your burning, fiery furnace. But whatever the case, we're not bowing to a false deity. We're sticking with God. Said a long-suffering Job, Though he slay me, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 
In Matthew's account of these temptations, Jesus at last turns about and he says to Satan with all authority, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. Jesus would stand strong. Jesus would stand with God. And what's the payback for standing strong? When you've considered all of the tempting gods of this world and you have said no, is there any reward really for keeping with him who is indeed God? Matthew's gospel has this interesting postscript. So the devil left Jesus. The devil left Jesus. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The violent storm passes, and in its wake, sunshine and the cool breeze. When the nightmare seems it can't get any worse, suddenly you're awake and thankful to God that life is not a dream. You're in the crisis of your life, and you wonder how you're going to make it. Then you remember that somewhere it is written, My grace is is sufficient for you. Awful storms and bad dreams pass on by for everybody, of course. But amid life's ultimate crises, God is looking for the faith, the hope, and the trust that is expressed by his very own people. And so it is, friends, that you and I can stand strong. And so it is that we can stand with our Christ. Come what may, regardless of every trial and temptation we may ever face, we can stay with God. For him only shall we serve, and so may it be in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.